If you would again uh, take out your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. We will begin reading at verse 28, and then we will read through chapter 50 and verse 26, which is a lot. But it also means that we are finishing Genesis. We have made our way through, or we will be, Lord willing, by the end of uh, this sermon, we will have gone through uh, the entirety of Genesis. So, Genesis uh, chapter 49, uh, 28 through chapter 50, verse 26. And again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atat, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim, It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with 
with the field from Ephron the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive this transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We thank you for this study we've gone have gone through Genesis and all of the various lessons we've learned of your providence, of your loving kindness, of your covenants. We're thankful, O oh God, for all that we've learned and how we've grown. We pray now that as we Uh, study this last portion, that uh, we would hear from you, that we would understand, apply it to our lives. We pray that we would uh, grow in our affections for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, the, the story of Genesis is the story of the beginning, the very beginning beginning of all things for sure, but really also the story of the beginning of redemption. From the beginning, right on the heels of man's fall into sin, God sought to rescue His fallen son Adam and all of his progeny afterwards. Those who were born of Adam were born with a sin nature and are to be redeemed by the only begotten Son, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this book has been the story of the beginning of that history of redemption. After Genesis, this becomes a pressing question for the Exodus generation. 
After Joseph passes off the scene and a new Pharaoh rises up who did not know Joseph. You see this in the very beginning of the book of Exodus. God's people are taken into slavery and then redeemed by the hand of God. And so there's a picture of God's redeeming of His chosen people through Christ, which would come in the future. So now we've come to the end of the Genesis narrative, and we come to the final, or to the end of Jacob's life, who is the final patriarch of Israel, and we come to the end of Joseph's life as well. So in many respects, the narrative of Joseph has come full circle. The patriarch Jacob is about to pass off the scene, and the various loose ends of the family are being dealt with. Finally, we see the covenant family functioning as a cohesive unit. As we've gone through Genesis, particularly as we've looked at the family, the covenant family, you know, they've been really a mess a lot. Here they are finally being a cohesive unit. The seed planted with Abraham, as he was called out of Ur, is coming to fruition as a nation. And the last acts of Jacob are about his concern for the family and for the promises. The promises of God, of land, and and of nation, and of the blessings of which uh, he and those before him had had embraced by faith. That That the family would continue in that same faith. And so Jacob makes his children to swear that they will bury him in Canaan, but they won't leave him in Egypt, because that is where his hope is, and that is where their hope is in God's promises. God had promised them that place. They were to remain in Egypt indefinitely. And so Jacob, on his deathbed, had given special blessings to each of his sons, and now he makes his final act before passing off the scene. Himself, And so, as we jump back into the narrative this one final time in Genesis, and we see again, after having given the blessings, we had read in verse 28, He had given each of His sons a, a blessing which was particular to each of the sons. He now, he now gives instructions to His sons. He commands them to bury Him with, his fa- with their fathers in the cave in the field of Ephraim. This is the one you may remember. Abraham had purchased uh, this, this field, this cave from the Hittite in Genesis chapter 23. And it's here that Abraham is buried. And Sarah is buried. And Isaac and Rebekah, they're all buried there. And Jacob had even buried Leah there. And so he desired to be buried there as well. All the patriarchs and all of their wives are buried in that cave. Jacob was to rest with his fathers in symbolic unity of faith with them. Jacob trusted in the God of Abraham and of Isaac, and thus desire to rest with them awaiting the resurrection. And so after giving his instructions, we see in verse 32 that he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now these are typical phrases which describe death and burial. Jacob had given the benediction to his sons. He provided for them their, the final uh, resting place. 
And now, content with his fate, he draws up his feet. In other words, he had been sitting up in bed, and he went to a lying position, drew his feet up into bed with him, and lays peacefully. He breathes his last breath. He is gathered to his people. Now, what is striking is that the text does not say, and he died. In a lot of other places where it talks about death, it says, and he died. Here, it doesn't actually say that. It's sort of interesting. In one sense, Jacob is not dead, but sleeping, awaiting the resurrection. He was gathered to his people, not simply in burial. He will certainly be buried with Abraham and Isaac and with their wives. But he is uh, in, a, in a spiritual, he's a spiritual communion in the heavenly places. He is gathered with his Lord. When the Christian dies, they too are gathered with their people, as it were. We are transported into the presence of Christ and His people. The souls of believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness and pass immediately into glory, into the presence of the Lord as our bodies rest here on earth in the grave until the resurrection. This is how we view death. The hope of the Christian is not simply to just die and that's it. We are with the Lord. So through the death of a, though the death of a believer in one sense can be joyous, you know, we celebrate that they are in the presence of the Lord, is also gr- grievous. There's a loss. We have grief. And so at his father's death, Joseph, we see, fell upon his face and wept over him and kissed him. Notice that Joseph is featured throughout this part of the narrative. He's the, seen as the leader of the family, uh, particularly as they relate to Egypt. All the actions of throwing himself and going up, burying, returning, these all center around Joseph. These are activities that Joseph is doing, and the others are simply referred to as his brothers. This may be because it was Joseph who had the closest relationship to their, to their father at the time of Jacob's death. This is also why we see the deep compassion of Joseph as he weeps over his father. He weeps now, not with joy, he weeps in grief. And the mention of Joseph falling on Jacob's face and kissing him recalls the promise to Jacob in Genesis chapter 46 and verse 4 that the hand of Joseph will close his eyes. And so here we see that being fulfilled as Joseph falls on his father's face weeping for him. But immediately we see Joseph springing into action to prepare his father's body for the trip that they are going to make for burial. Now the Egyptians embalmed the honored dead to assist them in their afterlife journey. But the Israelites don't share in that belief. And that's why they didn't embalm bodies. But Israel, uh, Israel insisted that a corpse be handled with dignity for the sake of the living. For the deceased was to rest in the grave until the resurrection. So the embalming of Jacob's body then was not because his body needed to be intact for the resurrection, 
but for the sake of the extended journey to Canaan. This is the reason for this. There's much we could say about burial practices. One thing we could say briefly is that nothing we do to the body has any impact on the resurrection. And people sometimes wonder about those sorts of things. But what we do in burial practices does communicate something of what we believe concerning the body. Whether it be embalming or cremation or simply burying the body in a wooden box. Our hope is not found in getting buried just right, but in the promises of God who says that the the Christian will be raised from the dead on the last day. Now the embalming practices of Egypt, we read, took 40 days. And we read also that the Egyptians wept for 70 days. This is interesting, that the Egyptians are weeping for Israel. Now these times probably overlap. The time of mourning would accord with the period of public grief, which is observed for Aaron in Numbers chapter 20. And what is striking is that the whole nation of Egypt mourned for Jacob. It's not just Israel who's mourning for Jacob. Egypt mourns for Jacob. Now, of course, this is fitting because Jacob was the father of the Savior of Egypt. It was Joseph's actions which had allowed them to continue living. And so after the time of mourning is passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh. And he asked them permission to go to Canaan. Look at verse 5. He says, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And here we see that Joseph appeals to the king's sympathy. He retells of the oath which his father had made him to swear. And of course, wisely, he omits Jacob's prohibition concerning burial in Egypt. He doesn't tell him that part. But the request is simply that his father desired to be buried in the family tomb, and so he needed to go make that happen. He needed to take his father, father's body to Canaan to be buried. And so he asks politely, let me go up, let me bury my father, and then he makes a promise, I will return to you in Egypt. The Pharaoh, we see, is willing to oblige. Since he made you swear, go and bury your father. He doesn't even, he doesn't even repeat that Joseph was returned. He doesn't say, now, now make sure you return. No, he trusts Joseph. And so verse 7, Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him was a large entourage. All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. And so here what we have is a, a funeral procession, which included dignitaries from the Egyptian court, from the empire, an army of chariots and horsemen, along with the family, the whole household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. All all the people went except for the children and the animals who remained in the land of Goshen. So what we see is a very great company, a large procession which would go from Egypt down to Canaan. 
The magnitude of the processional, one commentator said, testifies to the stature accorded to Jacob. According to the Egyptians, he was seen as a great man. Jacob was viewed by Israel's host nation to be a very great man indeed. Jacob's funeral is quite different from the modest uh, internments of Abraham and Isaac. God had worked through Jacob such that he even had the attention of the king of Egypt. Think about the life of Jacob. Jacob's life started pretty rough. He was the heel grabber. But Jacob finishes well, doesn't he? And so as the procession approaches Canaan, they pause at the threshing floor of Adad, which the, the narrator notes is beyond the Jordan. Now, we don't actually know where this place is. The, the viewpoint of the speaker would determine which side of the Jordan is actually being referred to. I suppose it depends on where you are you know, in relation to which side. It's ambiguous. And Atad is unknown to us. If it's on the east side of the Jordan, then the route that they took was roughly the same as that which was taken later by the, on the, after the Exodus. If it is on the west side, this would be the most direct route along the, the plain of the Philistines. But whatever the case is, we don't, we don't really know exactly where this is, but whatever the case may be, the group pauses in this place and they lament. We see that it was a very great and grievous lament for seven days. Seven days is a full cycle of days. And it was the usual, was the usual period of expressing grief in Israel. This was a collective lamentation. Such that it was quite sad for the Egyptians. And and by the way, this is genuine mourning. This is not just ceremony. They're not just going through motions. They genuinely are lamenting and mourning for Jacob. This is, this is how well-loved Jacob was. And the Canaanites saw this. They saw this take place, and they called this place Abel, uh, Abel Miserim, that the mourning of Egypt. And this really reinforces the intensity of the mourning. And so the sons of Jacob did what they had been commanded to to do. They carried Jacob to the land of Canaan. They buried him in the cave, the, the family tomb. And so as this burial is completed, as instructed, the language of Jacob's request is again repeated, which is to say they did exactly as their father had told them to do. And so after they had buried him, they then returned to Egypt. Joseph and his brothers, all of those who had come down from Egypt, had gone, then went back to Egypt. And so here we see the conclusion of the burial of Jacob. Jacob passes off the scene, just as Abraham had, just as Isaac had as well. And so new leadership was to take the reins. However, now that the patriarch was gone, Joseph's brothers begin to feel nervous. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. 
Now suddenly with their father gone, the, the bro- Joseph's brothers realize we're in a very vulnerable position here. Joseph, after all, is, a, is still the second most powerful man in Egypt. Now he's unrestrained. Their father is gone. Will he now repay them for what they had done to him? Here, the brothers are not acting in faith. They're acting in fear. They had not yet gotten rid of their guilt and shame. They were uneasy. And they were thinking that despite his earlier reassurances, perhaps Joseph, Joseph held a grudge against them. And so they're afraid. Now, this is not based on anything Joseph had done or said. This is based on their own consciences condemning them. As they begin to reflect again on their, their sin against Joseph, they, they see how guilty they are. Their consciences are bothering them. And so they send a message to Joseph in verse 16. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your Father. Here's the message which they send. They send this ahead of themselves. They're going to come later and fall before Joseph. But they send this by messengers to Joseph. And you'll see in this there are two voices. First you have the post-mortem voice of Jacob. And then you have the voice of the brothers asking for forgiveness. Now you might wonder... Did Jacob actually say this? Did Jacob actually say this? Or did they, did they fabricate this to try to convince Joseph? Like, you know, you, you really don't want... You know, our dad said you shouldn't do... You know, come after us, so please, please forgive us. Whether or not Jacob actually said this or not, or whether this is a fabrication, is we don't really know for sure. What is known is the brothers are afraid. They're fearing Joseph. And so they use the voice of their father as a way to appeal to Joseph to respond to them favorably. Please, please don't, don't come after us. Don't repay us. Please forgive us. And really, in a sense, what they are doing is begging Joseph to forgive them of their sin. Which, at this point, has been many years in the past. And they're begging him because... Because they, they basically are saying, because we're, we're servants of the Lord. We serve the God of your Father. And the brothers appealed to God's purpose, and they're having now ended up in Egypt. Now, when Joseph heard about this, we read his reaction is that he wept. Joseph had wept for his father at his death, and now he weeps for his brothers. After 17 years of kindness shown toward them, which should have helped them see that He had forgiven them of their transgression, His brothers still did not understand. And they mistook His goodness and kindness to them as a front for revenge. And so this grieved Joseph to his heart. I suppose if you were misunderstood, it would grieve you too. I suppose you have been misunderstood and been grieved in this way. Joseph is badly misunderstood and it grieved him. And so he weeps for his brothers. 
Well, then the brothers come and they throw themselves down before Joseph. And they say this, Behold, we are your servants. So here again is a, the dramatic arc is drawn over the story, referring all the way back to chapter 37, the, the vision which Joseph had of his brothers bowing down before him and serving him. The message of the messengers was that the brothers were servants of God. Here they say, they come and they say, we are your servants. Really what they're saying is, we are your slaves. We will be your slaves, Joseph. Please forgive us. We will be your slave. In a sense, being Joseph's slave was equal in their minds to being a slave of God. Those who had sold Joseph into slavery now were willing, willingly offering themselves as slaves to Joseph. Now, we see, of course, Joseph refuses. Verse, look at verse 19. He says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. They had equated slavery to Joseph and slavery to God is almost one and the same. And Joseph says, I'm not in God's place. Do not fear. And there was no reason for the brothers to be afraid. Neither was there a reason for him to forgive them again. Joseph had already forgiven them. But what they needed now, what they needed now was reassurance that they have been forgiven. And isn't this what you need sometimes too? Don't you need reassurance that you have been forgiven of your sin? Don't you wonder sometimes, has God really forgiven me? And you want to fall down begging God, please don't destroy me. I am a rotten sinner. What you need isn't more forgiveness. What you need is reassured that God's promises are true. The brothers need to be reassured. We believe in Christ. We trust in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. And yet you and I need to be reminded over and over and over again of the goodness of the Gospel. Because we forget. We forget the gospel. We forget the goodness of the gospel. And so we need reassurance over and over again that God has accepted us by faith in Him. The brothers didn't have any need to fear. Joseph may be powerful, but he wasn't God. And so they weren't really viewing him rightly. Joseph's rhetorical question invites a negative response. Am I in the place of God? Well, no, of course not. Of course he's not in the place of God. Joseph had only been an instrument of God. Only God can use their evil to bring about good. And that's, isn't that the key here too? That God took their evil intentions and did something good with it. Only God can really do that. Verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive even as they are today. 
For the brothers, the brothers had treated him badly. You know, they had thrown him in the pit. They had sold him into slavery. They had acted w- wickedly. They had evil intentions because they hated their brother. And yet, God meant it for good. Not only for Joseph's good, but even for the brothers who had acted in evil to begin with. It was for their good. How does God do that? Because God is awesome and amazing. The Westminster Confession of Faith declares this, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least. And this is because, as Psalm 135 says, whatever the Lord pleases, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth. What, what does the Lord please to do? Whatever He wants to do. Because He's God. God does all things according to the counsel of His own will and causes events to fall out according to the second causes. We see this also in our confession. It was in fact God's will that Israel end up in Egypt. God's plan for this was not contingent on the brothers of Joseph. Well, you know, I've got this, God's got this, you know, got this plan, but well, it's only going to work out if, you know, Joseph's brothers, oh, it's not contingent on that. God's going to work out His plan because God's going to work it out. The brothers sinned and God was not the cause of their sin. They acted out of their own wickedness and yet God is able to accomplish His own sovereign will even as the brothers were responsible for their own sin. And so the people of God can rest with confidence that they are in the hands of a holy, righteous, and sovereign God. God's hands in which we are in are good hands. Because God is good. God's providence is most holy, most wise. And so we can trust in Him that He is good and right in all He does. And this was a situation for Joseph. What had happened to Joseph was evil. It was wicked for his brothers to sell him into slavery. But in the big picture, by God's good providence, God meant it for good. Because the people of God were rescued as a result of their evil actions. In fact, they were kept from starving to death. Now someone might ask, well, does this mean that God delights in evil? Oh, of course not! But God can and does use evil actions to accomplish His will. And so this truth ought to give us some perspective. You know, sometimes things don't go our way. Our days don't always turn out like we'd like them to. It's funny, this week, uh, you know, we had our officers training class on, on Tuesday, and at least three out of the four of us shared some, something that happened that day that didn't quite go the way we had hoped. A couple flat tires were a part of that. All of us have had days like that. Nothing goes our way. Perhaps some evil has befallen you. We can, in humility, though, trust in God's providence, knowing that we may be experiencing difficulties now. 
But we don't know what God's purposes for those things are in the end. We don't know what God is working out in our lives. They may not, may, maybe it's not for us anyway. Perhaps having some perspective, knowing that God is good and that He is working out His will according to His purposes will help us to grumble less. I grumble more than I should. Perhaps you do too. If we have the perspective that God is sovereign, maybe we'll grumble less. Maybe we'll give God glory more, even as we suffer in this world. The intentions of men can and often are at cross-purposes with the intentions of God, but God is sovereign over all things, not men. Men are not sovereign. You and I are not sovereign. The evil person who does evil things is not sovereign, but God is sovereign over all things. And so the fact that the brothers' evil intentions resulted in God's saving many people is positive proof of God's goodness and His providence. Therefore, Joseph's brothers didn't need to fear. Joseph is not angry with them. In fact, his life experiences have given him reason to give glory to God. And so he reassures his brothers again, I will provide for you. I will provide for your little ones. Thus it says he comforted and spoke kindly to them. Joseph promised to continue to give them all the necessities of of life which they had been receiving since they had arrived in the land. And now that the famine is over, Joseph ensures the preservation of the family, the continued preservation of the family. And Jacob's death hasn't changed that anything in that regard. And so he, he spoke to them kindly and compassionately and gave them comfort. By the way, this is how to reassure someone. Sometimes people need reassurance from you that you actually have forgiven them. You've probably experienced this. You've forgiven somebody, but they're not sure that you actually have. Or maybe you've been the other way around. You're not sure that somebody else has forgiven you. Sometimes people need reassurances from you that you really have forgiven them. You speak to them in kindness. You speak to them gently. You give them assurance and comfort. Because we're to forgive others as the Lord has forgiven us. Hasn't the Lord been kind to you in forgiving you of your sin? We're to do that to others. We're to forgive, not begrudgingly, like, well, I guess I have to forgive you, even though I really don't in my heart. No. We're to grant full, grant forgiveness full and free because in Christ, you have been fully and freely forgiven, haven't you? Was not your debt to God even greater than anyone else's debt to you? We read now that Joseph remained in Egypt in his father's house and lived 110 years. Now, 110 in Egyptian terms was considered to be the ideal age. So Joseph lives the ideal Egyptian age. And this was a sign of God's blessing on Joseph. Joseph and the rest of Israel remained in Egypt. They lived there well past the famine. In fact, the nation was to remain there for 400 years. 
He sees Ephraim's children to the third generation. To see great-grandchildren is also a great blessing. This is the blessing of Psalm 128. May you see your children's children. Proverbs 17 also says that grandchildren are the crown of the aged. Some of you have crowns, don't you? Grandchildren. The point is that Joseph was so greatly blessed with a long life, with children, with grandchildren, with great-grandchildren, which he saw and knew. What a blessing. The children of uh, Machir, Manasseh's sons, were also counted among Joseph's own sons. Literally brought to Joseph's knee, which suggests that they were adopted. Just as, as Joseph's sons were adopted by Jacob, Manasseh's sons are adopted by Joseph. Now, Machir was the most important clan of Manasseh. They produced many offspring. And so again, the point is great blessing and fruitfulness. For Joseph. And as Joseph neared his death, just like his father Jacob, he made his children swear that they would bring him out of the land and bring his body to the land that the Lord had sworn that he would give. And so here is the first mention of the patriarchs together. The, the typical formula which we see throughout the Old Testament of Abra, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and will carry, you will carry my bones up from here. And so though Joseph had spent much of his life in Egypt, in fact, he spent more of his life in Egypt than he ever did in Canaan, and he became very powerful in Egypt, his hope was not found there in that place. His hope was found in the Lord and the promises that the Lord had for his people. And so we see that Joseph dies at 110. He's embalmed. He's put into a coffin in Egypt. And later, uh, during the Exodus, Moses will carry his bones out of Egypt. And in Joshua chapter 24, it says that they were buried in Shechem in the land that Jacob had bought from, from the sons of Hamor. And so this is where uh, J- Joseph was to be buried. Thus, we have now the end of the narrative of the patriarchs and the end of the book of Genesis. Now, although this is the end of the narrative of Genesis, as I've said in the beginning, it is really the beginning of the story of salvation, the history of redemption. This first book of the Bible records for us, in seed form, the plan of redemption which was to come in Christ. Even as man fell into sin, the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. Abraham would be the father of nations. And from him would come the promised one of Israel, who would bring blessing to all of the nations. The hope of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was in God's promises of protecting, providing, and redeeming. Covenant themes of Genesis continue throughout the book. Blessings, seed, land. And these will continue throughout Scripture as well. God's chosen people will be blessed generation after generation. Even as some from the covenant family will rebel and walk in sin, God is always faithful to His promises, even when you and I are not. 
And just as the people of God trusted in God's promises then, you and I must trust in God's promises now. The Lord Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, has intervened on our behalf. He died in your place. He took your sin and has imputed to you His righteousness by faith. Just as Joseph's hope was found in God's land promise, and your hope is found in God's promises of the new, of the new heavens and new earth. And so jo- just as Joseph was looking forward, you and I look forward as well. We look forward to the new heavens and new earth, a, a world transformed and inhabited by transformed and redeemed people. In fact, isn't this the hope which the New Testament ends with? Does not Revelation end with the promise of Jesus where He says this, that He will surely come. Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank You for all of Your promises. We're thankful for our study in Genesis the history of your redemption or the beginning of it. We're thankful for how as we look at all of the Old Testament and all the New Testament, we can see the the rolling out of your plan of salvation in Christ. And we thank you that even as we are unfaithful, you are always faithful. And so we pray that you would bless us. May we apply these truths. May we walk by faith. May we be reassured of our salvation, our hope, and our rest in our Savior Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.